the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show on this beautiful Thursday afternoon. James Blind is producing Dave King engineering today we'll hear a conversation with dr gregory vance or rather jance he is the author of triumph over trauma and mark moyer triumph regained the vietnam war 65 to 68 we'll also take a look at a case where faith is under siege that gives us a bit of perspective as well so all of that coming up in today's program but first a look at some of the day's news the white house secured a re- the release of five americans imprisoned in iran in exchange for several Iranian nationals imprisoned in the United States, as well as the release of nearly $6 billion in seized Iranian oil funds. Now, this is a mechanism that the Iranians have used before. You take some hostages, you get big benefits. Well, the move by Iran, by the American uh, hostages, uh, of the hostages from Evan Prison, which is a terrible prison, uh, to house arrest is an important development. Jared Genzer, a lawyer representing one of the Americans released in the deal, uh, says, while I hope this will be the first step to their ultimate release, this is at best the beginning of the end and nothing more, the attorney added. But there are simply no guarantees about what happens from here. Well, three of the five uh, were all taken prisoner by Iran on dubious charges of espionage and spying. Two other Americans, a scientist and businessman, have not had their names publicized, a source familiar with the situation said, but all five are on that list. The former um, was handed down a decade-long sentence and has been incarcerated in the notorious Evan prison since 2015 for allegedly collaborating with a hostile state. Another was handed a similar sentence for having contacts with the U.S. government. As part of the deal, the U.S. will transfer the $6 billion in seized Iranian oil revenue to a Qatari bank, The Times reports the Qataris will be tasked with overseeing the funds and allowing the Iranians to withdraw the funds only to pay for humanitarian needs. Well, the prisoners have been transferred to a hotel in Tehran, according to the attorneys, while they will remain for several weeks until they board a plane bound for the United States. Only after the funds have been transferred again. These are five Americans who have been imprisoned in Iranian uh, Iranian prison, Evan, which is one of the worst In other news, President Biden has secured a $6 billion deal from, uh, rather, to free those uh, uh, Americans. It's actually the same story. Former Navy SEAL Mike Sorrell um, argued that Americans still trust rank-and-file soldiers, but says the U.S. leadership is to blame for plummeting military confidence. Several former LGBTQ members of the uh, U.S. Armed Forces are suing the Department of Defense for denying them honorable discharges because of their sexual identities and for listing their sexualities on their service records. The former service members have argued that because they did not receive honorable discharges due to their status, they do not have access to all the veterans' benefits, including health care, loan programs, and college tuition assistance. They also allege that the U.S. military uh, disclosing their sexual orientations on their record was an action that violated their privacy. 
Although the uh, plaintiffs were discharged when the U.S. military had laws in place that barred LGBTQ individuals from military service, some of them being dismissed under the military's now defunct don't ask, don't tell policy, they appealed to current U.S. leadership and called the previous policies discriminatory and wrong. Well, according to the UCLA School of Law's William Institute, an LGBTQ research group, over 13,000 military personnel were discharged from the military for violating the don't ask, don't tell. Uh, the Trump administration instituted a ban on transgender members of the military as well in 2017, a policy that the Biden administration repealed some four years later. Senator Mitt Romney out of Utah appeared to tell Representative George Santos, who is facing a House Ethics Committee investigation, that he did not belong in Congress and that he was an embarrassment. Well, meanwhile, more than 60 Republican lawmakers from Utah are pushing to end Senator Mitt Romney's career on Capitol Hill. Utah State Speaker Brad Wilson has taken the first steps toward challenging Romney, the Republicans' 2012 presidential nominee, by forming a Senate Exploratory Committee in April. The committee on Thursday announced that Wilson's possible run is already being endorsed by three quarters of his GOP colleagues in the state house's lower chamber and two thirds of Republicans in the Utah Senate. I am honored and encouraged to have the support of so many leaders from all corners of this great state. Wilson said Utah needs a bold conservative fighter in the U.S. Senate, and I am humbled at the support and encouragement we've received so quickly. Romney has at times had a fraught relationship with Republicans in his state, particularly other elected officials over his willingness to criticize and vote to convict former President Donald Trump after his impeachments. Utah Weber uh, County GOP voted to um, censure him uh, for that very thing in May of 2021. Trump swept the state in 2020 during his race against President Biden. Romney hasn't announced whether he plans to run for re-election in 24, but he filed a statement of candidacy with the Federal Elections Commission earlier this year. It would be his first re-election campaign after winning his seat in 2018. Early fundraising data show both he and Wilson are gearing up for an expensive fight. Senator Joe Manchin said on Thursday that he's seriously considering becoming an independent and lamented that Washington Democrats brand had become so bad. That's in quotes. I have to have peace of mind. Basically, the brand has become so bad. The D brand and R brand Manchin told West Virginia Metro News talk line host Hoppy. Uh, Kerchival in West Virginia, the D brand, uh, because it's the uh, national brand, it's not the Democrats in West Virginia. It's the Democrats in Washington. He clarified. Well, some had speculated that Manchin would very likely become a Republican, but not so. He says both brands are tainted. Manchin, uh, Manchin has been asking uh, asked several times in the past about the possible party switch, particularly after helping to kill the uh, uh, key pieces of President Biden's progressive agenda, like build back better. He never ruled it out on Thursday morning. However, he said, I would very seriously think about becoming independent. Congressionally approved aid for Ukraine has cost each U.S. household, including yours, hundreds of dollars. That's according to Heritage Foundation budget expert Richard Stern. The formal aid packages alone amount to a staggering $113 billion, roughly $900 per American household, and almost 12 times the spending cuts promised by House leadership in the annual spending bills. Stern is the director of the Heritage Foundation's Grover M. Herman Center for the federal budget in an email to the Daily Signal. The news outlet went on to say, as with all new federal spending, This $113 billion spending spree 
was added to our national debt and will cost more than $300 in interest cost per household over the decade. Of course, we've given more aid than that, but haven't paid the bill on that just yet. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back to listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, I want to remind you that the 2023 Pastor Appreciation Breakfast Well, it's on the calendar. October 6th, it's a Friday, and you are invited. This year's keynote speaker is musician Darren Mulligan of the band We Are Messengers, who's going to share his story, talk about the music ministry he's uh, involved in, share a message that is sure to inspire. Morning worship will be led by Ben Fuller. This is um, during October, which is, of course, Pastor Appreciation Month, and we want to honor all pastors, ministry leaders, and their spouses, plus other key staff members who serve with a delicious breakfast, fellowship, worship, and keynote speaker, Darren Mulligan. It's free. All you need to do is go to kpdq.com, register, and let us know you're coming. House Republicans say FBI documents they've obtained prove that several field offices contributed to a memo that targeted traditionalist Catholics as potential terrorists, conflicting with recent sworn testimony from FBI Director Christopher Wray. Republican leadership on the House Judiciary Committee revealed in a letter sent to Wray on Wednesday that said the documents they subpoenaed from the agency detailed how both FBI Portland and FBI Los Angeles field offices were involved in or contributed to the creation of the FBI's assessment of traditional Catholics as potential domestic terrorists. At least 36 people are dead and search efforts are still underway on the Hawaiian islands as the influence of Hurricane Dora to the south of the islands and a strong ridge of high pressure to the north fueled dangerous wildfires. As the firefighting efforts continue, 36 thus far, fatalities have been discovered amid the active Lahaina fire. No other details are available at this time, according to a press release from Maui County. Fire crews battled brush fires on Maui and the Big Island on Tuesday as wind gusts of more than 70 miles per hour helped spread the flames. One of the larger fires burning on the northern part of the Big Island charred more than 1,800 acres. Hawaii's Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke said this is an unprecedented disaster as an indirect result of Hurricane Dora passing just south of our islands. It's truly devastating and my heart goes out to the residents of Maui and all those impacted. As the wildfires continue, visitors with current and planned lodging at West Maui hotels may need other accommodations. Uh, She issued an emergency proclamation to extend the state of emergency to all counties, discourage non-essential air travel to the island, and order all affected state agencies to assist with the evacuation. The proclamation is to discourage travel to the affected areas so that they can prioritize their scarce resources for Maui residents who desperately need assistance. Some found their way into the ocean trying to escape the flames But even the uh, water was on fire in some areas, we're told. Thursday, um, former President Donald Trump pled not guilty today to new charges related to classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. The second time in one week, he has denied allegations brought by federal prosecutors as he remained the GOP frontrunner for the White House in 2024. U.S. Magistrate Judge Shanike Mills Maynard formally accepted the plea from Trump. Uh, who told the judge in court papers last week that he is not guilty and waived his right to appear at the Thursday hearing in person. Trump's aide, Walt Nata, and Carlos de Oliveria, the property manager at Mar-a-Lago, were both present on Thursday's hearing, or for the hearing. Nata also pled not guilty to the superseding indictment. De 
Oliverio was unable to enter a plea in the case because he still has not secured a Florida-based attorney, which is required under local court rules. His arraignment was therefore pushed back a second time and is now scheduled for the 15th. Former President Trump said he is refusing to sign a loyalty pledge to the Republican Party, raising doubts about whether he will be debating fellow GOP candidates later this month. Trump dismissed the idea of making the pledge in an interview with Newsmax on Wednesday, telling Eric Bowling um, of the balance that the gesture would not be worth it. I can name three or four people that I wouldn't support for president. So right there, there's a problem. Trump took a particular issue with the low bar for entry into the Republican debate regarding polling percentage and national support. The former president said he would not want to give unpopular candidates with only a percentage of the vote a chance to say nasty things about him. He concluded, but I'm going to uh, look at it very seriously. I'd like to do it. I've actually gotten very good marks on debating talents, he said of himself. But you want to be, you know. Uh, They want a smart president. They want somebody that's going to be smart. So we have to uh, do the smart thing, end quote. Well, out-of-state Democrats are cheering the defeat of a proposal in Ohio we talked about yesterday that would have raised the threshold for amending the state constitution from a simple majority vote to 60 percent after Buckeye State Republicans spent weeks accusing them of intervening in local affairs. Democrats who campaigned against the proposal said it was aimed at making it harder to protect abortion rights in the state of Ohio. But its supporters pointed to another provision that would have required signatures from all of Ohio's 88 counties rather than just 44 for a proposal to get on the ballot and said it enabled more Ohioans to have a voice in their constitutional amendment process. National groups on both sides put money into the nationally watched special election on Tuesday after issue one was defeated 57 to 43 percent. Prominent Democrats were quick to paint it as a national victory rather than a state matter. Thank you, Ohio, for giving the county uh, rather the country hope. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said. A crime lab in Los Angeles County has confirmed the dangerous flesh-eating drug uh, xylazine has infiltrated the county's illicit drug supply, known by the street name Trank or the zombie drug. The um, uh, sedative, which is not FDA-approved for humans, is mixed with fentanyl in a deadly combination that can cause um, necrotic sores. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department detected limited quantities Of the drug and illicit drugs seized by local law enforcement, a county press release said the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health stresses that these findings highlight that the illicit drug supply in Los Angeles County remains dangerous and contains substances such as xylazine that can uh, increase overdose deaths. The health officials are warning people who are obtaining these drugs may not be aware that this particular strain is present. A member of the House of Representatives progressive squad is calling out his own party and President Biden over how Democrats have handled the worsening migrant crisis. Representative Jamal Bowman out of New York called on Biden to show leadership and comments to reporters. He pointed out that the margins for Democrats to claw back the House are slim and warned that handling the influx of undocumented people in New York would likely be a critical issue in the 2024 races. We need leadership from President Biden, period. We need that leadership right here in New York State because, you know, New York is struggling, Bowman said, according to the video captured 
by NY1. We're struggling to provide housing and all the support that migrants need. He went on to say Republicans currently hold a 222 to 212 majority in the House and there is one vacancy. Here's the thing, he went on to say. Democrats are looking bad right now in New York State and that's unacceptable and we have to win at least four congressional seats to take back the House. So hopefully he went on to say the president is listening. Well, dozens of New York Democrats have pleaded with Biden to declare an emergency and authorize more federal funds to help deal with the crisis. In the wake of last week's highly anticipated testimony of Hunter Biden's former business associate, the legacy media went to great lengths to downplay its severity and potential fallout for the president, specifically by elevating a quote allegedly said by the witness. Devin Archer, the longtime friend and colleague of the beleaguered Biden son, testified in a closed door setting to House Oversight Committee as part of the ongoing investigation into the Biden family's foreign business dealings and whether they are tied to the president. It didn't take long for lawmakers from both sides of the aisle to leak details from that testimony to the press with Republicans ramping up corruption allegations while Democrats rejected the notion that there were any bombshell revelations. But there was one leak in particular. The Democrats um, made the rounds in the news cycle. Hunter Biden was selling the illusion of access to his father. The so-called illusion of access Archer allegedly spoke about to lawmakers was to frame Hunter Biden as merely using his father's status as the then vice president to entice business associates, but... Uh, that there was no financial gain from the perception Hunter was promoting. However, the transcript from the meeting, which is now available, showed that the illusion of access wasn't terminology coined by Archer, but rather Democratic Representative Dan Goldman attempting to discredit the testimony. He used that phrase in a question that Archer only partially agreed with. Leading uh, up to the release of the transcript, the media ran that with Goldman's narrative without offering an ounce of skepticism often citing unnamed sources from the closed-door hearing. Well, it's unfortunate. Well, coming up in the uh, next segment, a conversation I had with uh, Dr. Gary Jantz on triumph over trauma. And in the second hour, Mark Moyer, who writes about triumph regained from 1965 to 68 in Vietnam. All of that's coming up in the second hour, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, trauma is usually thought of as a dramatic event, such as sexual assault, domestic violence, combat, school shooting, or childhood abuse. But more commonly, according to my next guest, but no less devastating, trauma is caused by events like divorce, the death of a spouse, a miscarriage, or getting laid off from a job. Well, the COVID-19 pandemic brought two years of unexpected trauma to millions of people through prolonged sickness, sudden job loss, financial crisis, loss of loved ones, relapse into substance abuse, and, and more. The after effects, depression, anxiety, addiction, panic attacks, insomnia, and more can affect people for years and even a lifetime. The pandemic sparked a 25% increase in anxiety and depression worldwide, according to the World Health Organization. My next guest has written a book to help triumph over trauma, find healing and wholeness from past pain. Dr. Gregory Jantz is a popular speaker and award-winning author of many books, including Healing the Scars of Emotional Abuse, Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse, and Overcoming Anxiety, Worry, and Fear. He's the founder of The Center, A Place of Hope in Washington State, and he joins us today to talk about his latest book. Dr. Jantz, thank you so much for joining us. 
Well, good to be with you today. And it is an interesting and tough topic, both. It really is. I was thinking about events that just unfolded today uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a traumatic event, even from a distance, to watch what happened there, to consider what happened in Colorado with shootings in a school. There's so much going on around the world that we find ourselves in a swirl of events that can, I would imagine, um, cause us to feel a sense of anxiety and fear and all of those things that you write about. You know, that's the thing. It's anticipatory anxiety. It's out there. We're anticipating the next bad thing. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is the next bad thing. It's like, no, 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 we, we can't do another school shooting. You think about this, you go, are you kidding? And so that's repeated traumatic events is really what we're talking about. And they come in different forms. Well, you perhaps have answered the question, but talk a bit about why this book is so relevant today. We mentioned an event that unfolded earlier today, but there have been over the last couple of years a number of things that uh, have left many of us feel feeling traumatized. Yes, and unfortunately, what's happened is, you know, from COVID, pandemic, um, there was just people end up doom scrolling. It's like always there was something bad going to happen. And we were traumatized. Our kids were traumatized. Uh, year 2021, we had the highest academic failure on record. And you look at this, you go, wow, what is going on? Um, and our kids are suffering. Right now, ages 10 to 17, suicide is the second leading cause of death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at these things, it is traumatic. And we look, some of us have lost a loved one. Uh, there is so much going on in the stress, the chronic stress in our families. And so really what we're talking about here is how do I manage trauma in my life and keep my thinking, you know, sound, keep my thinking clear because it's a lot. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Now, you you may have touched on this, but I just want to give you an opportunity to speak specifically. What is trauma? We tend to think of it as a, a physical wound. But what you're describing is something beyond that. It certainly can include physical wounding, but there's more to it or there can. be. Yes. And there is emotional traumas. If you grew up uh, at home and maybe there was a lot of comparisons. Why can't you be more like your sister? Look at her. You know, and, and that was a repeated theme. Over time, that's traumatic because it begins to shape who you are and how you feel about yourself. Uh, if you were in any way a, a victim of abuse, physical abuse or sexual abuse, guess what? That's really, really traumatic and something that is ongoing, uh, and what that does to us and the developing brain. And so we're experiencing traumatic events, uh, and it overwhelms our system because there's no place to put this. It's, the trauma is so uh, shocking, it's so, if you will, wrong, that there's no place to put it. And now there could be trauma that came from a, uh, maybe it was a disaster or a, uh, somebody's sudden death, and we we don't know what to do with that. And we're particularly sensitive if you've already struggled with depression or you've su- suffered from anxiety growing up, and then you experience traumatic events. 
you know, that's really what we call post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Can you um, talk a bit about uh, the three healing keys for trauma, things that we need to know as we're moving toward healing and restoration? Oh, absolutely. You think about what do I need to know in order to heal? Well, first of all, a key is I have to really deal with reality. I have to understand the effects this had on me. I have to also understand that it's it's going to take some work and I, I need to have help. I, I don't heal in isolation. I don't heal alone. And one of the steps that we have to figure out is how am I going to do forgiveness? How am I going to do forgiveness um, of myself or others or forgiveness of the situation? Too often when there's trauma, we carry around deep, deep wounds that turn into uh, resentment, turns into bitterness. And that's really what we've got to figure out. How do we, how do we deal with this? And if we don't, uh, we're more prone towards addiction and developing addictions. If I've got uh, a compulsive behavior, if I have unresolved bitterness, resentment, unresolved hurt in my life. What role does a person's faith play in the healing of, of trauma? Our tendency might be, you just kind of need to get over it. Uh, is there a role to be played that our faith can help us in this journey? Yes. And, and here's what I hear people say. They go, this was so hard, and I'm still walking through this. But my faith and understanding that God loves me and to be able to receive that love. I don't have answers for what happened to me, but to know that I am loved. And my faith is what's carried me through for the long run. I hear people describe that. You write about um, 10 truths about trauma uh, that you discuss in the book. Can you share a couple of them? What are these truths about trauma that will help us to, first of all, better understand what we're experiencing so that we can prepare to move past? Well, one is that traumatic things can happen to any of us. We just, and, and we all will have our turn with something. And, uh, you know, we've all experienced, at times, tragic things. And so uh, nobody's immune from, from trauma. And I would say that... Um, Trauma affects us in different ways. It's always real. Our experience of it is always real. As you think about uh, trauma and you go, well, that was no big deal. But, you know, for the person that might have grown up for a lot of emotion, with a lot of emotional abuse or they had a loved one who was uh, maybe they were shot and killed and they heard about a, a school shooting today, that's traumatic. So uh, we all... It's real for us, and we all experience it a little bit different. Um, I think, too, one of the other ones is people tend to uh, think, well, over time I'll just get better. You know, time will help it heal. Uh, And time is not enough to heal trauma. Well, that's such an important important point. Yeah, yeah, because I think we do assume the farther we're away from the event, uh, then the better off we will be. Yes, yes. Yep. So are there among these 10 truths that are uh, important to understanding trauma, 
Is there one that stands out? Where where should one begin? You know, I think we need, want to always have somebody who's trusted. I want us to have somebody that is uh, trusted and um, that can walk us through. I want you to have a good uh, counselor that knows what they're doing with trauma. Um, I think too often we we just say, I can handle this, and we try to do it all on our own, and it just doesn't work that way. Um, and I, and to be in the hands of a good counselor who really understands this, oh, I can tell you, it's just so much better to really be in the hands of an expert. Mm-hmm. Um, trauma isn't just something that we experience emotionally, but it also has an impact on the body, and that may be surprising. You may not link uh, the impact of trauma to a traumatic experience, but can you talk a bit about how it doesn't just uh, challenge us in our thinking and how we conduct ourselves, but it has a it can have a physical um, impact as well. Okay, trauma can affect depending on the age. It certainly can affect brain development, depending upon um, the repeated traumas. So our brain is, you know, when we're young, it's developing, it's growing. If it's uh, traumatized uh, by even emotional trauma, it alters brain chemistry. We know that over time, trauma can affect uh, our immune system and our immune immunities. So that's important to know. And those uh, are we, significant. Go, please go ahead. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're more prone to disease and sickness. We're also more prone to having sleep disorders and not um, not having what we call restorative sleep. Mm. Well, those are just a couple of things. Yeah, yeah. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Greg Jans. His book, Triumph Over Trauma, Find Healing and Wholeness from Past Pain. The book is published by Ravel and is currently available. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Dr. Greg Jans. He is the author of Triumph Over Trauma, Find Healing and Wholeness from Past Pain. If you want to better understand the nature of trauma, in an effort to identify, is this an experience I'm having and what impact is it likely to have on me physically and emotionally? This is a great resource to help better understand what that is all about. And what are some of the practical ways, Dr. Jans, that we can rewire our brains after trauma? You were talking a bit about that just before the break. Yes. When I think about rewiring our brains, that's literally what happens. There is a rewiring and it is our body, as it recovers, uh, creates what we call new neural pathways. It creates a rebalance of body chemi- or brain chemistries, dopamine, dopamine, serotonin. Those are important chemicals. So uh, there's things that we can do to help our brain, and our brain is amazingly resilient. Mm-hmm. And so we know that even certain nutrients will help our brain um, and so a big part of caring for trauma, it's not the only part, but a big part is re-caring for our brain. Our brain has been, uh, it's like the circuits have been blown in our brain with trauma. So how do you do that? 
I mean, I'm sure there's more than one thing you do to accomplish that, but yeah. how do you go about it? Well, one of the things is the power of, as you work through dealing with the reality, as the power of, of forgiveness over an event, as that begins, uh, as we begin to allow the brain to have restorative sleep and rest, um, even people with trauma forget to drink water. And so nourishing the brain with water, it sounds so simple, but it's so powerful. Uh, we always want to look and see, or do we have inadequate vitamin D? As our brain, uh, there's uh, the uh, what we call the fish oils, the omega-3s, uh, is so important for brain health. We also want to look at how is our thyroid, how is our hormonal uh, balance in our life, or uh, and so those are all key components to helping the body restore. And again, we're talking about the book where you'll find this information, Triumph Over Trauma, Find Healing and Wholeness from Past Pain. In one chapter, you uh, it's called uh, Revise Your Script. Explain how you can do that after trauma. Okay. Well, really what we're talking about is um, we're talking about how you've seen yourself, how you've perceived your future because of trauma, uh, sometimes we we develop shame and we feel like, wow, I don't deserve uh, anything good. And you kind of end up living that way. And, or you sometimes with trauma, you can end up blaming yourself and blaming yourself uh, is such that um, you, you get stuck and you get stuck in uh, repetitive relationships. Um, and, or harmful relationships, I should say. So as we rewrite the script, it's like we have to learn how to re-envision a different future. We have to learn how, how am I going to uh, think differently about myself? Um, how am I going to really come to the place that, you know, my past does not have to define my future. That's a real important key. You write about uh, hope. It's a common thread throughout your throughout your book. How important is uh, hope to healing? You know, when I think about the word hope, hope tends to come for us when we have a plan. And the plan is... Um, the plan is, how am I going to rebuild my life? How am I going to get the help I really need? How am I going to care and do the nutrition for my life? It is such that hope comes when I have somebody helping me with a plan. It's vital. Uh, otherwise, I can feel helpless and hopeless. Mm-hmm. Is it always important to have someone else with whom you're sharing that plan as you're moving in a more hopeful direction? Yes, we need. We can't do this alone. We need help. Uh, we need help to do this. And when we isolate, uh, we will tend to really default on our thinking. What is post-traumatic growth? We hear a lot about post-traumatic stress, but what is post-traumatic growth? And can uh, is it something that one should expect if you're following? what you've written about in, uh, in your book, Triumph Over Trauma. It is the belief and it's knowing that post-injury, post-trauma, I can grow. 
post-trauma, not only do I grow, um, but I have a plan for my physical growth, my spiritual growth. I have a plan for my emotional growth. I am setting myself on a course of growth. And that's what we do uh, when we are working through this. We start to see hope for our futures. And also, when traumatic events happen in the future, we're able to manage those and manage the emotions of those without it uh, really sinking us. What I mean is it's still very difficult. It's very difficult to hear about something traumatic. But you're able to keep uh, really yourself in the right frame of mind, even though I'm dealing with some difficult emotions. I know that um, for for your readers, um, you have a, a, a an idea that they're going to walk away with certain capacities that they didn't have before. What do you hope your readers will take away from uh, reading and applying the principles in this book? And I should mention it's intended to be very practical that at the end of every chapter, you have practical questions and tools to help the reader move forward. What is your goal in writing and what do you hope your readers will walk away with? Yes, my hopes are really uh, that you will know that there is a different future for you, that there is a a plan that God has that is good, um, that you can walk alongside very traumatic events with, with the right people, and you can, in many ways, it's hard to imagine, but you can be strengthened, and you will turn around, and you will be a help and a resource to others. Where can our listeners uh, find a copy of Triumph Over Trauma? Well, I would imagine at your favorite online retailer, whatever it may be, and uh, christianbook.com. It should be available everywhere. All right. Again, the title of the book, Triumph Over Trauma, Finding Healing and Wholeness from Past Pain. And we've had plenty of that. Uh, The healing process, however, we need some help. So I appreciate your uh, coming to talk with us about it and for making the book available to walk us through that process. Yeah, absolutely. And there really, truly is hope. Thank you so much. Again, Dr. Greg uh, Jantz is the author of Triumph Over Trauma, Find Healing and Wholeness from Past Pain. He's also the uh, founder of The Center, A Place of Hope in Washington State. You can learn more at Dr. Gregory Jans, J-A-N-T-Z dot com. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. It is the second in a trilogy on that war. He has recently recently written an article uh, that answered the question why America should pursue a strategy most likely to end the war in Ukraine at an acceptable cost. Uh, The new piece in The American Spectator draws on the history of the Vietnam War and shows how the fog of war can impact strategic decision making. He joins us today to talk about that new book and where we stand in the war with Ukraine or where I should say on Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You know, it's so interesting, the connection that you make with the war strategizing that took place in the Vietnam War 
and uh, the decisions that are being made now and the impressions given by our leaderships with regard to the war in Ukraine with Russia. Uh, talk a little bit about the connection that you see in terms of leadership and how we can be misguided uh, unintentionally, perhaps, uh, and how we can learn something from Vietnam. Yeah, so those are excellent questions. And I'll preface this by saying and we have to be very careful about drawing parallels because usually situations have some resemblance, but, but oftentimes they also have a lot of differences. But case of Ukraine, I think, is different in that uh, it's less clear, actually, how this is important to U.S. national interests. And Vietnam, one of the things I found, which ran against the conventional wisdom, is actually there was a strong strategic rationale, but President Johnson didn't do a good job of explaining it to the American people because he was focused on his domestic agenda. Now, President Biden, I think he too has not really done a great job of explaining this war. If you asked Americans, why are we sending so much money there? I think a lot of them would scratch their heads. Now, there's a a case you can make, uh, although I think it's in general a tougher sell because uh, Russia is no longer a superpower. In Vietnam, we were dealing with Soviets and Chinese, both superpowers. And uh, so there's more, I think it's more of a humanitarian and moral argument in Ukraine, which has some merits, but, but I think it's harder to convince the American people it's worth our, our blood and treasure. I think one of the interesting aspects of these two conflicts, one that we were directly involved in, the other that we're helping to supply in order to avoid becoming directly involved in, were errors made in leadership, errors in judgment that are, in Vietnam at least, only now um, coming to light. Uh, You wrote Triumph Reimagined as part of a trilogy to perhaps help us better understand what happened there as well as what could have happened there had Uh, decisions been made uh, in favor of victory. Uh, Explain to us why it's important to look back and to consider where uh, errors were made and how the information that was uh, those decisions were made on was flawed um, that led to um, a decision that ultimately meant we we lost that conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are certain, I think, eternal truths in war. And so we study history to uh, above all, to understand those. And in the case of Vietnam, you know, one of the enduring truths, uh, and this was first really articulated well by the German military theorist Karl von Clausewitz, is that the uh, the concept of the fog of war, that essentially there is so much going on that you don't know or you think you know, but you get it wrong. And people, some people have th- thought, well, with modern technology, we know much more. We, uh, but Vietnam, there's a lot of advanced technology, and yet 50 years later, we now are seeing that much of what people thought about the war at the time was wrong. And you had then, as you do now, you had a bunch of pundits and journalists who were professing to know all sorts of things. And uh, it turns out a great deal of that is wrong. And, of course, part of it is that your enemy wants you to uh, misperceive things so that you you commit errors. So that's one of the biggest, uh, I think, lessons that we should be paying attention to as as we are listening to people telling us how well uh, the Ukrainians are maybe fighting. You ask a a series of important questions in your article that appeared uh, in the uh, American Spectator, 
And you suggest that these are questions that should be seriously considered as we move forward. And people across the political spectrum are skeptical about the massive aid that we're giving to Ukraine, not suggesting we don't support the effort, but questioning whether or not there is a U.S. interest worthy of that kind of investment. You ask, with the population more than three times the size of Ukraine's, can Russia ultimately prevail through bloody attrition? How much aid will other countries contribute to the combatants in the next year? What plausible conditions will uh, convince both sides to agree to peace? These are important questions. Are our leaders answering them uh, for the American people? And perhaps more importantly, do they have good answers to those questions that will guide them in the political and military decisions they'll be making moving forward, presumably in an effort to avoid a conflict where the United States is directly involved? Yes, well, there's, uh, of course, a lot we don't know um, about what's going on internally within the White House, although the team that President Biden assembled doesn't have a lot of great military thinkers in it, which is also what President Johnson had. He hired Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, who was a, an automobile executive who really didn't know that much about the military. Uh, it does seem that people were hoping that the uh, Russia would have given up by now because of the losses they're taking, and I'm not sure they really figured out how ultimately they're going to work things out. Uh, you know, the, the Russians, again, sometimes we tend to assume they think like we do, but Vladimir Putin clearly has shown he's not all that concerned about the number of casualties he takes, uh, and which is a, a bit of a foreign idea to us. But if you look in Russia's history, uh, you know, World War II, they, uh, they didn't fight very well at the beginning, but eventually through superior numbers, they just wore the Germans down. And it seems from what we're seeing from Putin is that he figures that because he has a larger population, that he is eventually going to just overpower the Ukrainians. And so for that reason, I think it is in our interest to try to find some, encourage both sides to to reach some peaceful resolution before it gets to a complete Ukrainian defeat. Well, again, returning to the book just released in January, Triumph Regained, uh, this is a, uh, the second in a trilogy. The first was released, uh, Triumph Forsaken, uh, re- released some time ago, the first volume of the three. You challenged the prevailing academic orthodoxy with regard to um, the prosecution of the Vietnam War. Why this series and what motivated you to revisit uh, the series with information that may not have been available some years back? I first got interested in this topic because I started meeting Vietnam veterans and they did not uh, conform to the stereotypes I was seeing on television. They weren't disillusioned, bedraggled, uh, suicidal, homeless, etc. And so that got me thinking, you know, what else about Vietnam have we has been misrepresented to us? And I spent, you know, spent now 30 some years doing this and have become more convinced than ever that most of the conventional narrative, which was basically produced by the anti-war movement, uh, is fundamentally flawed. And so this book, I pick up where the left leaves off as U.S. troops come in in 1965 and find, again, there's just a huge number of myths out there that have been propagated. And uh, perhaps the most rewarding part of all of this is I get to hear from a lot of veterans who 
you know, write, writing to me and say, I'm glad somebody finally got the, the truth out about this because so much has been misrepresented. We're talking this afternoon with Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Mark Moyer. He is the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. Why did America go to war in Vietnam, and what did our nation hope to achieve in this conflict? Yeah, thanks, Georgine. The, the fundamental reason was to contain communism, and you know, that part of the story in itself is well known. But what was controversial is whether or not we actually needed to go into Vietnam to do that, and there's been a lot of people who've dismissed the idea that that the future of Asia was at stake. And they point to the fact that after the war in 1975, most of the other countries don't follow the communism. And they use that to say, well, this shows there was no threat. And my counter argument to that is, well, 1975 is 10 years after we go in. And so you can't just assume that what happened then would happen in 1965. And so I go to show how, in fact, in 1965, 65, there was a huge threat of communist expansion, and it's actually American involvement in Vietnam that will save most of Asia from communism. So you would argue that South Vietnam was, in fact, a vital interest to the United States at that time? It was, yes. And then as U.S. intervention causes changes, it saves, uh, at least to the overthrow of communism in Indonesia, it causes the Chinese to turn against the North Vietnamese and the Soviets. Uh, as those things happen, then yes, South Vietnam is no longer as important to American interests. I do think it still was harmful to let them fall, and it led also to the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, which killed 2 million people. But uh, in terms of the broader objective, we are able to save most of East Asia, which has great ramifications today because that is now the number one battleground for our competition with China, and we've been able to hang on to all of these countries thanks to Vietnam. What was the status of the war when American ground troops first entered the fight in 1965? At that point, the North Vietnamese seemed to be on the verge of victory, and they had launched a large invasion of the South in early 1965, which has also been poorly understood. But uh, so the Americans are, are rushed in to try to save the day. And there's a couple of decisive battles that take place starting in August of 1965 with Operation Starlight. And in each case, the Americans prevail. And this will then force the North Vietnamese to back off and shift to a war of attrition. One of the things I thought was um, most interesting in the book, and many of us believe this before you wrote it or before new information was made available. Um, But you write that the consensus view of the Vietnam War tends to depict the United States military intervention as a hopeless folly and immoral war of choice that was doomed to failure and ultimately weakened our nation and undermined American interests around the world. Um, You argue, and I think rightly, that this view is wrong. Explain why that's wrong. And again, I think that might be surprising to some of our listeners who uh, followed this at the time. 
uh, in the uh, midst of the war protests and under uh, the the leadership that seemed to be vacillating. Mm-hmm. Yes, the part of the or one argument you will hear about why the U.S. went in was that it was uh, that, that the U.S. Lyndon Johnson were trying to uh, kind of show off and just wield American power to uh, intimidate others. But we now know clearly from what's going on that that Lyndon Johnson really did not want to fight in Vietnam, and he's forced into it by this North Vietnamese offensive in 1965. And we've also been told that the South Vietnamese government was corrupt and inept, and they were just hopeless, and that it was simply foolish as well as immoral to support them against the noble Ho Chi Minh uh, of North Vietnam, who was really more of a nationalist than a communist. And that whole line is also, uh, I debunk that in uh, both Triumph Forsaken and Triumph Regained, uh, that communists were actually real communists who imposed Marxist-Leninist ideology, killed lots of people to do that. And our allies in the South were uh, Certainly by no means is brutal. Now, was there some corruption? Yes. But I, l- I like to compare it to Korea, where at the same at the same time you have a South Korea, which has been maligned for being corrupt and autocratic. And if you look today, South Korea is one of the freest and most affluent countries in the world. And you need only look to North Korea to see what happens when you use a Marxist-Leninist system instead of a liberal democratic system. You argue, um, and we talked about it a moment ago, that the war was a strategic necessity, but that it could have ended victoriously had President Johnson um, heeded the advice of his generals. Instead, he listened to um, others who advised him to take a, a different course. And we sort of edged toward victory at one point, and then, the, then he pulled back. To, uh, again, I, I think this is important because it helps us to understand the pressures, I suppose, of uh, leadership, uh, Biden in this case, Johnson uh, then in making decisions that have to appeal to the public, um, trying to find the right voices to listen to and moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about that strategic um, win that we avoided because of decisions that were made and voices that were heeded and others that were ignored? Yes, the uh, Lyndon Johnson from early on in 1965 is being told by his generals that the strategy that he and Secretary of Defense McNamara are looking to pursue, uh, which is basically just defend South Vietnam, is going to uh, lead to great difficulty in the future because basically you're allowing the North Vietnamese to keep uh, attacking you indefinitely as long as they want to. And so they proposed a number of measures outside South Vietnam, including cutting the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos, the main logistical line, and uh, ramping up the bombing of North Vietnam. And McNamara repeatedly convinces Johnson that these things are not going to work and they're going to needlessly provoke uh, the opponent, our opponents in China and the Soviet Union. We now see from what we know from the North Vietnamese side, also some things that have come out from the Chinese and Soviets, that, that in fact these measures would have worked and that uh, there was not this actual prospect of China and the Soviet Union coming in. And they really wanted no part of a war against the United States. So 
there were there were indeed huge opportunities missed to pursue strategies that would have either a just caused the North Vietnamese to capitulate or at minimum would have made the war uh, a much easier conflict for the U.S. military to handle. How did domestic politics and American public opinion impact the conduct of the war? Well, initially, the war is popular among most groups of the American population. Uh, the most interesting segment in this period is is the college campuses, because up mm-hmm. until the middle of 67, the college campuses are generally supportive of the war. And then you see this sudden shift in the middle of 1967, which I attribute to two things. One is the baby boomers are, are arriving on force. And then uh, the other is that they changed the draft rules to make it harder for college students to avoid military service. And so suddenly you see this great upsurge in campus protest, which claims to be sort of morally up, upright, but it's really motivated by uh, self-interest. Uh, but the rest of the country actually still is remains supportive through all the way through the end of 1968. And it, it's not the case, uh, as we've often been told, that the Tet Offensive in January 68 kind of turned the country against the war. Uh, the country is actually about as supportive in late 1968 as they are when the U.S. troops first arrived, which is especially remarkable given that Lyndon Johnson really didn't do a good job of explaining anything to the American people. Are we finding that um, under the current administration with the president, and you made mention of this earlier, the president is failing to really explain our involvement in Ukraine and to help the American people understand why so much of our treasure is being uh, given to that conflict. Do, do people understand? Is the president doing a good job or has he fallen short in explaining um, our involvement there? Yeah, I think he has fallen short and in a number of reasons, of course, in general, he's not been very communicative uh, with the media or anybody else. And, uh, you know, he's at a period in his career where I think, uh, you know, it's safe to say he doesn't have a, the energy you would want of a uh, you know, commander in chief. Uh, I think also you know, it is, you know, a hard case to, to make um, because you know, the United States, uh, you know, has other allies in Western Europe. And I think we, we presumably, you know, if the Russians were actually trying to attack one of the NATO countries, uh, we'd see a different response. But I think um, it's hard to c- explain why we would need, especially the U.S. itself, to get directly involved in Ukraine. And uh, people, I think, rightly wondering why the Europeans can't handle most of this themselves. They've got plenty of money, uh, but many of them you know, would rather not commit their own resources. But I do think it makes sense for, for us to expect more out of the Europeans. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue our conversation. Again, talking with Mark Moyer. He's the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 68 the second in a trilogy of books on the subject. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the second in a trilogy of books on the Vietnam War, this covering the period between 1965 and 1968. 
what were the consequences of America's defense of South Vietnam for the broader Cold War? Uh, did it have much impact on that um, on that uh, ongoing uh, cold conflict? Well, it's certainly of great benefit in Asia in terms of preventing the fall of other nations. It does in the short term have a negative impact in 1975 when America fails to stick up for its ally and it gives the Soviets and the Chinese reason to believe that America is weak and can be exploited. And they, they in the, during the Carter period, we see a lot of Russian advances. I think there's some parallel there, too, with what we saw after the fall of Afghanistan. I think America generally came across as very weak in, in how we let our allies go, which I think probably did something to encourage Vladimir Putin to go into uh, Ukraine. Do you believe the war was a worthy but improperly executed enterprise? Um, Should we have been there? Uh, And you've already made the point that we could have left as victors as opposed to a failed effort. Your thoughts about our role in Vietnam? Yes. One of the interesting things about the debates over Vietnam is almost no one, the people who say it was a big folly, none of them will claim, will argue that stopping communism in Asia was unimportant. And uh, it'd be very hard to argue that, in fact, because if you look at the world then, and certainly today, Asia is the area of most dynamic growth in terms of people and wealth and power. And so we, as a country, I think, had a great... uh, interest in shaping the course of events there. And we did ultimately, they said, prevent most of those countries from falling to communism. I think if you had seen Malaya, Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, Japan, uh, following the route of North Korea or looking like Vietnam afterwards, uh, Asia would be a vastly different place. We'd have a lot fewer trading partners. We'd have to deal with a more aggressive China. And uh, so I think in terms of the the continued struggle for control of the world and economic power, it's been uh, hugely important that we've been able to keep most of these Asian countries uh, on our side. We're currently um, facing the possibility of a conflict with China that's allied itself with Russia, and we don't know to what extent and what that will ultimately uh, ultimately mean. Can you just speak uh, about our national security, whether or not Vietnam, and for that matter, our response in Ukraine and maybe even Afghanistan, has informed our would-be enemies, uh, future uh, opponents, Uh, about the United States' resolve to defend itself, its willingness to win a conflict should one arise in in, uh, the Asian area with with Taiwan um, and so on? Yeah, I think one of the the biggest challenges and one of the things that the president has not done a good job of explaining is, is the reality that China is our number one strategic rival now and to the degree we pour money into ukraine that is going to uh, reduce our ability to deal with china and the chinese seem to be catching on to this and i think they figure that by giving some more aid to uh, russia that they can uh, 
drain our resources even more. I think they figure they don't need to provide the same level of support. So it's a net a net positive for for them. And uh, you know we have you know another difficulty we have. I think is Biden has put America's credibility on the line in Ukraine, and if the United States wavers, um, or if say we get to the point where you might have to send American troops in to save Ukraine, which would be a very difficult decision. Uh, that is going to send signals to China. And I think certainly if they perceive the United States as being weak, that could be a trigger for them to invade Taiwan, which, uh, you know, Taiwan, I think, is much more important to the U.S. than uh, Ukraine mm-hmm. is. Yeah, but just the the minerals and uh, the resources they have there, which, of course, China would like to exploit as well. I know your first volume um, on Vietnam history, Triumph Forsaken, created quite a stir in academia. Uh, explain that um, that stir, if you will, and uh, this second in the series and then the forthcoming third in the series, if you believe that will also challenge some of the assumptions and conclusions that have been drawn about that period of U.S. history and war. My interpretation in Triumph Forsaken and in the new book, Triumph Regained, is uh, runs contrary to the left-wing orthodoxy that has come to dominate American perceptions. And you had many of the people who've written about Vietnam were people who were protesters during the 1960s, and so they have a especially strong vested interest in the conventional wisdom. So a lot of them were not at all happy to have somebody telling them that this was all wrong. And it certainly had negative consequences in terms of um, a career in academia. And uh, and unfortunately, it's not just limited to Vietnam War, but I know a lot of uh, very smart people who have PhDs, but who were seen as being too conservative and who ended up not teaching it at all in academic world and having to go elsewhere. It's part of a you know, just broader problem we have where essentially the college campus has become a one-party state that does not really have an interest in free and open debate, despite all of the lip service they pay to the idea of diversity. Yeah, the most recent example of judge on uh, on a law school campus that was uh, literally shouted down by a member of the faculty. Well, the the book, um, the books, I should say, uh, the two in the series and the the third that's coming really do help us to better understand what happened there and perhaps to think about the challenges that leadership has in in making decisions about how to prosecute a war, the voices that they're choosing to listen to. Any advice based on our experience in Vietnam that you would give to President Biden uh, with regard to how he makes decisions about how we're going to support the 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 Ukrainians in this conflict and the potential for conflict of our own uh, in in the future with uh, with China or, for that matter, some other country? Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly recommended that they solicit a, a broad range of views and listen closely to what the generals have to say. Uh, now, generals are not always infallible, but oftentimes they know things that the civilians don't quite understand. And if you have a president like Abraham Lincoln who really understood military affairs, that's one thing, but we don't have that. So you need uh, 
uh, President A and also some advisors who can help him comprehend all of this information and and not have a reflexive disdain of the military, which has often been a problem for the Democrats ever since uh, the Vietnam War. Well, I thank you so much for the book and for talking with us about it here today. I really appreciate your time and your uh, your effort. Well, thanks very much, Georgine, for having me on. It's great, great talking with you. Thank you. Again, Mark Moyer, the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Yesterday, I mentioned that the Christian missionary in Haiti who had been kidnapped along with her daughter has since been released. And we are getting a bit more information about who facilitated that release and how that came about. Concilium Inc. is a faith-based global security company. It's headquartered in Kansas City, Missouri. They worked with the State Department and other American law enforcement officials to secure the release of the New Hampshire nurse and her daughter, both of whom were kidnapped from the campus of Christian Education Ministry Elroy Haiti on the 27th of July near Port-au-Prince. Well, throughout this ordeal, and I'm now quoting um, Elroy, throughout this ordeal, God demonstrated his loving kindness through both private and public sector partners and resources who helped us navigate this crisis. Uh, Concilium Inc., a faith-based global security ministry, provided crisis consultants whose critical guidance and support led us each step through the recovery process. God also sent us key U.S. law enforcement and State Department representatives who worked tirelessly behind the scenes in support of Alex and her family. Through these partners and resources, the Lord proved himself to be holy, faithful, present, just, merciful, all-knowing, loving, good, and glorious. Hmm. The ministry said Alex, uh, the, the nurse who had been kidnapped, who is married to Elroy Hades' founder and Liberty University graduate Sandro uh, Dorsainville, was released by Haitian gangsters on Tuesday, healthy and unarmed. Rather, unharmed. Of course, she was unarmed. Anyway, uh, we could not be more thankful for the safety of our dear sister, friend, and staff member. Alex is a remarkably resilient woman whose walk with God guides her deep love for her people, her family, her passionate commitment to the Haitian people. The ministry also noted that Haitians show how much they value the work of Elroy uh, through their protest of the gang members prior to the Christian mother and daughter's release. It has been an ongoing, very serious security issue there. On the day she was abducted, witnesses told the Associated Press that Alex Dorsainville was busy caring for patients in a small brick clinic when armed men ambushed the site where she was working and took her captive. Members of the community said the gunman demanded a million dollar ransom. It was still unclear if any ransom was paid. We don't know. Sandro's and Alex's impact in the community was reflected in the people's response to Alex's kidnapping as thousands of Haitians united their voices and risked their lives to march for the release of Alex and her child, as well as other Haitian captives. To the many people and communities in Haiti that expressed support for Alex and her daughter during this time, we want to say thank you for the courage you've shown in the midst of your own challenges, the ministry said. Sandro and Alex believe that the hope of Haiti rests in Jesus' work in the rising generation. The Elroy Haiti ministry was born out of um, Sandro's desire to bring the transforming love of Jesus to this community, which is now his community, by meeting spiritual, physical, and emotional needs of Haiti's youth. The statement went on to say, The Bible tells us that if we are to boast... 
We should boast in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10:17. We at Elroy Haiti are delighted to boast of how good our God is as he clearly demonstrated his love, grace and mercy through so many who stood faithful and firm championing the flight, the fight uh, rather the plight of Alex and her child until the Lord delivered them both to freedom. So really good news. I know many uh, were praying for her, perhaps some of you as well. And uh, that has uh, resulted in her being released. In other news, not quite as encouraging, Gary Bauer points out that like many states, Massachusetts is facing a crisis when it comes to placing children in foster homes. There are far more children than there are homes. Many children are forced to sleep in hospital hallways or state offices because the foster care system is so overwhelmed. So kudos to Mike and Kitty Burke, who stepped up to be foster parents in Massachusetts. Mike is an Iraq war veteran. Kitty is a former paraprofessional for special needs children. But after going through a grueling process that included multiple home visits, the Burks were stunned to find out that their foster care license was denied. Well, the question is why? Well, much of the interview process focused on their Catholic faith and involved questions about sexual orientation, marriage, gender dysphobia, dysphoria. Not surprisingly, this Catholic couple holds traditional Catholic beliefs. Well, the state of Massachusetts rejected their application because, as one reviewer put it, their faith is not supportive and neither are they of LGBTQ issues. We were absolutely devastated to learn that Massachusetts would rather children sleep in hallways of hospitals than let us welcome children in need into our home, the Burke said in a statement. This is yet another sad example of the decline and fall of America's commitment to Judeo-Christian values. Not long ago, virtually every state had restrictions on open homosexuals adopting children or being involved in foster care programs. There was a consensus in society that children should be raised by a mother and father. There were um, also concerns about the risks of exposing children to alternative lifestyles. Well, that was then. This is now. Those restrictions began to fall as the community movement gained strength, which it did largely because of clever arguments about tolerance. And when the Supreme Court redefined marriage to include same-sex couples, any remaining restrictions were wiped away. As has been repeatedly argued, no society is built on total neutrality or tolerance for all values. Every society is dedicated that some values are good and noble, and it promotes those values while it discourages others. So here we are in 2023. The all-in progressive state of Massachusetts is now declaring what values are good and bad, which values it will promote and discourage. Tolerance is a thing of the past. Massachusetts has decided that it is the, uh, the Christian lifestyle and the Christian worldview that children must be protected from, because that lifestyle and that worldview will lead to debased and bad outcomes. That's an actual quote. By the way, some bureaucrats in Massachusetts want to put parents in jail if they refuse to affirm their child's gender identity. And we're talking about children. And of course, the same movement that made libertarian arguments based on love and tolerance is now imposing a discriminatory intolerance to force Christianity into the closet that it successfully vacated. Well, men and women of faith cannot be passive bystanders in America's raging culture war. I wish it was otherwise, but it is in, it, it is not. The radical left has no tolerance for Christian values, and it has no intention of letting um, their opponents, as they would describe, live and let live. 
That's where we stand today. It's a sad situation, particularly given how uh, desperate they are for foster families and children will simply have to do without uh, if a Christian family is the only alternative for their housing. I hope you're continuing to pray to lift up our nation because we desperately need help, restoration, repentance, and faith. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James uh, James Blinn for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.